I've talked to a lot of folks who have 20 to 60 years of mindfulness and meditation practice. And anyone who has a really long-term practice will tell you it's impossible to stop your thoughts. You can control it, but that's not necessarily healthy. And ultimately, it's impossible. The mind secretes thoughts like the mouth secretes saliva. It's just its nature to do that. And our job is to become aware of that mechanism, to learn about the nature of the mind, not to try to control it. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is Ben Morton, and a very warm welcome to episode 91 of the podcast, in which we are joined by Jonathan Reynolds, who is the founder and CEO of Mindful Life, Mindful Work. It's a US-based leadership development company providing services that address the intersection of self-awareness and team performance. Since 1997, Jonathan has trained extensively in the discipline of mindfulness and his work with leaders and teams emphasises simple and practical ways to improve performance, efficiency and workplace cultures by integrating mindfulness sensibilities. What I personally love about this approach is that whilst they can teach mindfulness and meditation in the corporate marketplace, this tends not to be what they actually do. And when you listen to this episode, you'll know exactly what I mean. Jonathan shares a brilliantly simple approach for starting meetings in a much more intentional, effective way without it taking up any extra time and without it feeling weird in any way. So with that as the teaser, folks, please enjoy episode 91 of the show and my fascinating conversation with Jonathan Reynolds. Jonathan, a very warm welcome to the podcast. First of all, always like to ask, how are you? Great. Thanks so much, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I really respect your work and excited to have this conversation. Brilliant. So let's dive straight in. Can I ask you a little bit about sort of, I guess, who you are and, and, and what you do? I mean, I personally would love to know a little bit more about mindful life, mindful work, and, and what that means and, and how it evolves. So that's a, a great opening context question for guests, I guess. Well, thank you for the question. Again, who doesn't like to be asked about what they do? <laughs> um, yeah, Mindful Life, Mindful Work really grew out of my own mindfulness practice. I started practicing mindfulness in the late 90s, uh, things like meditation and yoga. And over the years, that evolved and codified and For about the last 12 years, I've been offering executive leadership coaching in the corporate space, and things grew organically. I started to surround myself with people with complementary services, and then Mindful Life, Mindful Work codified. In 2018, we became a C corporation, and now we offer assessments, coaching, consulting, trainings. We offer some B2C, things like groups and individual coaching. Most of our work is in the B2B space. Uh, but we're really interested in good conversations. We're interested in the intersection of self-awareness and team performance. Uh, how does this actually, how does the good stuff that we go in and learn about ourselves, whether that's through a meditation practice or a self-awareness practice, how does that actually show up in team dynamics uh, at scale? 
so those are the sorts of conversations that we like to get into. And how does that typically work in the in the leadership space for, for you then? How does the mindfulness practices, kind of some of the learnings and teaching from meditation and yoga, how does that fuse with and inform the, the work you might do with sort of senior leaders, say? Well, as you might imagine, it's different in every context. Um, I like metaphors. So it's sort of like water pours into any vessel, any shape vessel, any size vessel. And so every, every conversation is unique. Um, and I think it's also important to mention we don't really do mindfulness proper. I mean, we can and we have. Uh, but for us, it's, we're mindful life, mindful work for a reason. It's about a mindful way. And using that awareness, we see mindfulness as a tool, not as a commodity or a deliverable or even a standalone service on its own necessarily. We see it as a tool to then do what? To raise performance, to raise productivity, to raise wellness, to raise satisfaction. Um, and so I, I think that's really an important context. We tend to go through the L&D door, the learning and development door, rather than the human resources door, because we want to be seen as a business decision. We want to be seen as the design and the desire to scale a company or grow a company's performance and supporting its people are not two separate uh, initiatives. Those are really the same thing. I think that's one of the great things that you and I connect around is how do you actually make a space and a context where people can show up, be more human, be supported by the systems that are in place uh, to do their best work, to be excellent. Um, that's what all of us really want, right? We want to feel like we lived an amazing life and made a contribution. And, uh, and I think self-awareness is the fuel for that, again, both in the individual, but also within any system. And of course, an organization is a system of relationships. I'm not entirely sure what my question is. It's still forming in, forming in my head as I as I ask this, and that never really works out well for me because I'm much more of an in, internal thinker. But I'm really curious about this human aspect that you that you mentioned because it's something that I'm really really passionate about. And I think in some places, in some organisations, kind of work can start to feel not not that human. Like I wonder what's your take on. What gets in the in the way and sometimes leads some of us, some leaders to forget that an organization is made up of, of human beings? And what do you think part of the, the, the solution is? Because it feels to me that right now kind of the world needs great leadership more than it's ever needed. And it feels like many people are wanting a more human kind of workplace, but kind of necessarily they're not kind of changing at the speed that people, workers would maybe like, like it to. What's, what's your thoughts around that, Jonathan? Well, I think it's connected to the things that we're seeing in sort of a COVID environment around burnout and attrition and the great resignation and all these things that are happening is people are overloaded and they're overwhelmed and they've always been overloaded and overwhelmed. And now it's to a degree that it's just not sustainable. And so one of the things that I think happens in those scenarios and situations and contexts is there becomes sort of an economy of energy. There becomes an economy of, oh, I don't have time to be friendly to you because I've got 80 things to do. I've got this thing to do 80 times and I don't even like doing it once. I've got to do it 80 times by the end of the day. And because of that, I don't feel like I have the space to even relate to you in a human way. 
And so we hear this a lot also with mindfulness is a lot of times when wellness initiatives come in, for instance, uh, people say, great, one more thing I got to try to do that I'm not going to have time for. And so how to actually integrate these practices, how to actually have them be not one extra thing, but a shift in perspective, a shift in way um, that then gives us energy. I mean, we all know this. If we spend all day on the computer, at the end of the day, we're depleted. If we go have a conversation at the cafe with one person, we feel energized and inspired, even if the conversation wasn't particularly good, because we made a connection. And so the challenge is, is how to make these little steps that are the glue to a healthy company culture so people want to show up. So they want to show up as their best selves for themselves, but also for others. And not in some coercive way where the company tricked us into, you know, doing our best performance in a real deep way. Um, oh, I, I love these people um, in a really amazing way. And I want, I, I, want, I want to be loved by them in return. And what does that actually mean to show up in that most human way? You know, it's little things, it's email exchanges, it's all of the communication touch points, it's texts, it's tone of voice. All of that really matters. It, it might seem silly as a little isolated thing, like the way that we roll our chair across the floor, something as benign as that has an impact. Uh, a system of relationships is a psychological network. And if we don't sort of honor the impact of our actions, and we don't aren't around others honoring the impact of their actions, at a certain point, entropy takes over. It just degenerates into this mechanistic, um, you know, beneath the wheel to quote Herman Hesse situation. You know, it's just like, we don't want to do it. We're just on the treadmill, on the hamster wheel. And a lot of people are experiencing that. And the way you get off of the mechanism is to become human. Do you think it partly also comes down to at a corporate organizational level, kind of having a leader, leadership team, kind of board potentially that is very human as well. Cause there's surely there's an element of this where it comes down to a company having realistic enough goals that can be delivered with the resources it has available with, without bur burning, burning people out. Because if at the end of the day, a company is just striving to achieve some, incredibly big goal but it just doesn't have enough people which means people are trying to work desperately hard to get to get every done it's going to be very very hard to be hu human right and have the time for those conversations and those interactions because people will be head down just trying to survive and, and get stuff done yeah i mean i think you're absolutely right the burden of responsibility falls in a few places it falls in the on the individual employees only to the extent that they are supported and trained to show up as their best self. But training alone, of course, is not enough because that's not a systemic fix. Systemic fixes can only come from the top. I mean, when you look at books like Good to Great, uh, you know, it's the next level is being human and not being especially, you know, the leader that's charismatic and some superstar. It's the one that is steady the one who people can trust relationally, the one that has integrity and meaning and purpose and really moves through life and their leadership in a way that creates grounding. You know, it's, it's you know, the, the Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh said that when they came over on the refugee ships, if, you know, when the storms hit, 
if everybody lost their cool, all was lost. But if one person could just say, it's going to be okay and stay calm, that has a ripple effect. And so I think we need leaders that don't overreact, um, that really see a long game. Short-term losses, you know, you might get pressure from stakeholders and things like this, but I think for business to really mature, there needs to be a recognition that this is not a short game. This is a long game. Um, it should be a game beyond our own individual lives, for sure. Um, or you look at Native American thinking, the seven generational thinking, like think seven generations into the future, whatever you're doing. Um, you know, I think I think there's a lot of wisdom in sort of ancient traditions. And it doesn't have to be sort of this esoteric thing. These are real practical ways of approaching um, how do you actually grow something sustainably? I mean, in the United States, we're seeing some companies that have, you know, people thought would be forever companies, companies that were the biggest companies in the world, really getting shaken these days. And I think they're finding that some of those original leaders left and the sort of superstars showed up, but the superstars were just there for themselves. And, uh, and, and that's just not sustainable. Yeah, that reminds me of, I think it was in Jim Collins's book, Good to Great, he used the analogy or the phrase, a genius with a thousand helpers, right? That when it's all about the the one person at the top and they're the source of all the ideas, inspiration, when they suddenly go, everything everything collapses, right? Well, and they're necessarily limited like we all are. Why not use those thousand perspectives? I mean, that's really the coaching and growth mindset, right? Is is how, you know, access the brilliance in front of you. And, and you know, I, I think it was Einstein that said, if you judged a monkey by its ability to swim or a fish by its ability to climb a tree, you'd say it's an idiot. And yet, no, really find the, the brilliance in front of you and, uh, and maximize that. And because of that, you know, a, a table with one leg is really unstable. Why not have a table with a thousand legs? Yeah, sure. So many other questions I I, I want to ask you. I, I guess let's go here. So one is, I know you said you don't necessarily teach mindfulness that much of part of kind of what you do, but but you can. It certainly seems to me that it's um, gaining in popularity. More people are talking about it perhaps over the past 10 years or so, or maybe that's just reflective of uh, my journey and the people I'm, I'm talking to. But I wonder if you've se- have you seen a increase in popularity of meditation and, and mindfulness? And what, why do you think that is, if so? Well, definitely. I think in the last 10, 15, 20 years, mindfulness has become more accepted. And through things like MBSR, John Kabat-Zinn's work, uh, this sort of secularization of mindfulness in a way that it can be received um, by those that are more cognitively inclined. Uh, I, I think that's been really useful for uh, a scientific perspective, uh, and those that you know don't necessarily collect to, connect to the philosophy or the, even the psychology of it to a certain extent, and so I think there has been a real adoption, um, or at least acceptance to a higher degree. Um, that said, I, I, I think there's a big difference between being interested and committed. You know, they're, they're, the level of interest has never been higher, and yet. Commitment in companies usually shows up with real investment and in dollars towards a real change. Um, that's coming. It's it often, like you said before, it often has to come from senior leadership. If senior leadership has touched it and tasted it directly themselves, then there's a higher likelihood that there's going to be some real integration, sort of universally through an organization. 
what we're seeing is lots of little pods happening in organizations. And sometimes that grows and is supported once it gets going. Um, but often those start out with like internal people that are interested in just sort of doing it on the side. Um, that said, I think it's a really amazing time. And, and I think the reason that is happening is the same reason I came to mindfulness for myself is I was a young man trying to figure out life and trying to figure out, you know, how to be a better person and a more effective person. And, you know, my list of things I needed to do was getting in the thirties and forties and it was overwhelming. And I wanted the one thing that could make everything better. And I think self-awareness and anything that cultivates self-awareness does that. And I think that's true on an individual level, but it's also true on a systemic level. We use the psychology example of knowing how we impact others. Well, what about being present in the moment, drawing upon the history of a company, but also seeing what the next 30 years potentially could be? And we can't know exactly. But mindfulness, even though it, it has a heavy dose of being present, that's not to the exclusion of temporal future and past things. It really draws on them to inform and infuse the presence with all that knowledge and wisdom. And I think that you know, what are the drawbacks? Um, I think they're hard to find. I think you can always find drawbacks in anything. You can say it distanced people or it makes them too objective or whatever the case may be. I would stop calling it mindfulness if those things are happening. I think mindfulness is really robust, has an empathetic and a compassionate and a kindness piece. I think, you know, the example that's often brought up is the mindful sniper. You know, it's like, oh, this person that necess doesn't necessarily need a moral or an ethical component just needs to be really laser focused and attention needs to be hyper focused. I wouldn't really call that mindfulness. I'd call that hyper focused um, or hyper attentive. And so I think mindfulness necessarily is robust and has the other qualities. So it also informs the ESG movement, uh, the CSR element in companies, corporate social responsibility. Uh, I, th I think that it really rounds out and matures how organizations move in the world, sort of in line with the conscious capitalism movement. Yeah. So have, there, have you got any um, real sort of uh, examples or, or case studies you've stumbled across where either um, the senior leaders of an organization have really either embraced it for themselves or tried to bring in kind of more of a mindful approach to, to work and sort of what that what that looks like? Because I think you and I are, are believers and have been talking about this stuff for, for a long time, but there'll still be a big proportion of people out there, maybe a big proportion listening to this show who are still like, eh, I kind of I can hear what you're saying, but I don't really get it and convince me there's a million other one things going on. Why should I, why should I pay attention to this? Great question. Um, part of the reason I don't do mindfulness proper is because it can be triggering. Like I didn't say the word mindfulness for the first decade of my coaching because I wanted to meet the client with their language. And, and so I think it's really important to start slow. And it's part of the reason why I bring in more mindful sensibilities than mindfulness proper. Uh, so things like noticing sort of our inner experience when we're in a negotiation or in a difficult conversation or in a really great conversation. Um, so a lot of body direction can show up at times. And it's also very relational. I just got off a call earlier today, whereas if mindfulness or sort of meditation practice, for instance, 
just makes us more isolated. It's actually doing us a disservice. It should help us bridge our relationships and the way we are in the other areas of our life. And so a lot of my work with senior leaders when I'm doing one-on-one work is about coaching them to coach and using sort of their own, because they have all the expertise, they have decades of experience in their sector. Um, And so just a little shift in perspective can make a really large difference because they already have all the value they need and sort of the power to influence that they need. And just a minor tweak. Sometimes I use the metaphor of when you shift the eye one degree, it's miles at the horizon. And so the same thing, when you shift your awareness just one little bit, it can really have major, I mean, just think about something that you've thought negative about for five years and just start to inject a little positivity or a little bit of joy around it. Even if it's joy around the challenging part, you'll find that over time, it doesn't take a, it's not a huge shift. It's not a heavy lift. Um, that doesn't mean it's not always a heavy lift, of course, but the awareness piece can shift really quickly. Um, then the fallout, then the implications of, oh, how do I want this to sort of permeate through my team or the department or the organization? That takes time because you don't want to destabilize the system unnecessarily. Yeah, and there's always that danger, isn't there, when um, I often joke about this with clients and pe- people on on programs that I run. Where if you kind of go on a leadership program or you kind of have a break for an insight with with your coach, there is always this cautiousness about going going back and how much you change and how how quickly you do it. Otherwise, all those around you're like, oh, hang on, Ben's been on a course again. Kind of this thing's gonna <laughs> gonna change. So there is a there's a, a a nuance, and you have to think carefully about the the approach, don't you? Depending on what it is you're trying to play play around with, I think. Just to use meditation retreats as an example, everybody has deep insights on meditation retreats. And one of the last things they say, if they're skillful, is the teachers will say, don't leave your spouse, don't quit your job, like go back and wait a few weeks. And, uh, and you know, wait a few weeks because real integration, real metabolizing of new learning takes time to see how it situates in the context that your life is actually in. And when you're separate from that context, it's easy to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this wild thing. And that isn't very skillful. The same is true of practices. Um, I've had teachers, um, mindfulness teachers over the years that sometimes will practice a practice for two years before they'll teach it because they want to see maybe the first three months was fantastic, but then there's some nasty underbelly or some dark underbelly that sort of emerges over time that they don't want to share with others. And so I, th- I think, again, this, you know, we're in the age of needing constant feedback and constant verification. And if we don't get the text message back within three minutes, we think the other person must have been in a car accident. Like, no, it's uh, this, this ripeness, this patience, this recognizing that for things to really mature, especially when they're at scale, especially when it's 100 people or more or 100,000 people or more, um, we can't just turn left when we want to turn left. we got to plan a year or two ahead of time to turn left. And, uh, and the same is true of any real change, uh, real behavior change. Nobody eats one healthy meal and says, I did it, I'm healthy. No, they recognize that this has to be a practice or it's not going to situate. I'm really conscious um, as I'm starting to to talk to you more and more, I'm really getting this sense that being sort of more responsive versus reactive, 
slowing down, being able to kind of be in the the present as an individual or or as a leader, because that's what we generally talk about on this show, isn't necessarily a direct correlation between that and and mindfulness. But at the same time, I'm very very interested to explore mindfulness practice and meditation practice with w- with you. Um, partly for my own interest and to help me on my own journey here as well as listeners. But what's your, can you give us an insight into your current sort of practice and sort of what your journey to get to the point you're at now has has looked like? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's very helpful. And, and the first thing I'll do is contextualize that there's lots of things that could be considered mindfulness practice. There are some things that I sometimes refer to as mindfulness proper um, that are sort of real, uh, have a real historical lineage um, of thousands of years. Uh, I tend to fall into those mindfulness proper practices, but that's not to discredit or to undervalue uh, all those other practices that I might not refer to as mindfulness proper. Uh, so my, my path started in the nineties and I started practicing, um, meditation, uh, with a focus on the breath. And so I practiced that for a couple of years. And then for about a six year period, I did all concentration practices. Mindfulness or meditation practice falls roughly into two categories, concentration practices and insight practices. Concentration practices are those they're the more well-known ones i think around sort of focus on the breath or focus on an internal sound or you know it's it's a withdrawing of our attention externally to focus internally and even somebody who practices insight practices which i do um all sessions all meditation sessions start with growing the concentration because i'm coming from just getting out of bed and i'm sleepy or i'm distracted if i'm in the middle of the day i'm coming you know i i'm coming with baggage and so i think concentration is always a great place to start uh, so i spent about 8 years total in that space uh, practice and then around 2004 i started practicing insight practices uh, primarily in the Buddhist tradition, but again, they're found in other traditions. Uh, and then also compassion practice, which sometimes in the Buddhist tradition is called metta or loving kindness practice. And, uh, and so my daily practice is, you know, I walk sleepy into my meditation space and I set up the cushion and I sit down on the cushion. I sit on the floor. You don't have to, you can sit anywhere. One of my teachers says, don't sit in a weird shape. You're already weird enough, and, uh, <laughs> which is true. We're all weird, right? And, uh, and so, you know, I sit on the cushion. I start with a little bit. I have a little bit of a, an affirmation that I've used over the last 25 years that I sort of like self-designed um, just to sort of lead me in. And then I do a little bit of metta or loving kindness practice, which sometimes is internal phrases sending loving kindness to ourselves, to others, to the world, um, to people that challenge us even. Uh, sometimes it's just, you know, sort of feeling the body and feeling sort of the, you know, the emotional column, which is roughly the center, the central vessel of the body, you know, the heart and belly area. Um, and then I go into insight practice, which for me, insight practice is something very specific. I, I practice what are called the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, you know, which is body, 
um, sensation or subtle judgment, uh, and then uh, thoughts, emotions, and then expanding it slowly into more universal principles, I'll call them. And, uh, and I often just get to the first one or, you know, or I go first to three. It's not sequential. You don't have to do it in any specific way. Again, I, I think the most important thing when people practice is, is start slow, start easy, make it as easy as possible and trust your intuition, trust where you're guided, have a little bit of teaching, a little but, you know, it, it, it's helpful to have an individual teacher or to practice with others. So have some external influences. And once you're there doing it, trust your experience because your experience is true to the degree that it is, right? It's, it's, it's totally correct to be having the experience you're having, whatever it is. You know, sometimes when I'm practicing kindness, I'm feeling rage or I'm feeling anger. It's about planting the seeds and the intention. It's not about contriving kindness it's not about faking nice or you know i mean again some communities whether mindfulness or work communities are sort of faking good all the time that's not healthy either and so really being with what's true what is and honoring that in yourself that's your greatest learning experience is the greatest teacher uh, direct experience of your experience is really useful and I think that's ultimately what a mindfulness practice cultivates is can you have an unaltered experience? People are always having alt trying to have altered states of consciousness. All you have to do is drink a cup of coffee to have an altered state of consciousness. It affects you, you know, or eat a heavy meal or a light meal. You'll feel different. The challenge and the practice is to have an unaltered, totally pure, like a baby but with wisdom and experience. So to have that beginner's mind, and yet all of your life learning comes to bear on that beginner's mind. Uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by, I can't recall your exact language that you used there, but around the experience being true to the extent that, that it is. It reminded me that I think still one of the big misconceptions, maybe the things that, one of the things that puts people off because they rapidly go to this, these thoughts around what, a mindfulness or meditation experience should be like what they should be able to do there's this belief still and lots of people have that it should be able to sit there with a with an empty zen like mind in inverted commas and and if they're not doing it therefore they're not good at mindfulness or, or, or meditation but that's almost completely the the opposite to, to the truth of it right i think for me when i've um when i'm practicing and I've fallen off the wagon a little, little bit lately but actually the times when I try and sit down for 10 minutes and focus on my breath and just notice that my mind is really busy and I can't get beyond counting free free breaths because different thoughts keep coming into my mind but I persi persist for 10 minutes and might never get past free thoughts then that's probably brilliant because at least I realized that my mind's racing and I can make a, a subtle change, right? The goal is not to sit there necessarily and, and em empty your mind as, as my understanding goes. Is that, is that on the right, is that on the right lines? What, what are your thoughts around that? So many thoughts. Uh, first, the best practice is the one you do. That's the best practice. Whatever practice is good practice. Um, it's because it's the intention. It's the desire to learn. Um, that is good practice. And so that's the first piece. The second piece is I've talked to a lot of folks 
um, who have 20 to 60 years of mindfulness and meditation practice. And anyone who has a really long-term practice will tell you it's impossible to stop your thoughts. That's, you know, it's, you can control it, but, but that's not necessarily healthy. And um, ultimately it's impossible. Uh, The mind secretes thoughts like the mouth secretes saliva. It's just, it's nature to do that. And our job is to become aware of that mechanism, to learn about the nature of the mind, not to try to control it. Focus or balance. It's like if you close your eyes and balance on one foot, you'll find even if you don't fall over, you're never static. It's a dance around the plumb line. And the same is true in any practice. We never get to this place. There is no enlightenment. There's only enlightened action. It can show up in moments. And that was a quote from Shunru Suzuki, by the way. Um, And so I think it's really useful to know that um, we're not trying to empty the mind. We're trying to relate to it skillfully so we can be more effective and in good terms, in good standing, both directions with our experience. Uh, and, and, and I think that's very liberating. You know, a lot of people come to practice, and I'll just use Buddhism as an example. A lot of people come to Buddhism, and when they hear that all of life is suffering, there's one of two major reactions to that. The first and most common is, wow, thanks a lot. That's terrible news. Uh, I don't want to hear that. I definitely never want to hear anything about Buddhism again. That's number one. The second reaction is the one that I had, which is that is such fantastic news because it means I'm not doing things wrong. It means I'm not screwing up. This is part of what it means to be human is to be challenged and to have difficulty. You know, we're sort of sent this message, at least in the United States, that if you're not happy and rich, you screwed up. Like, yo, you just didn't do it right. The, the winners all did it right, and you just aren't a winner. And that's such a terrible message to send because life is challenging. If, if, if you get into any of those people's lives, you'll find out they're not totally content because they're human. And, uh, and so I think it's really important in our practice to have a lot of compassion for ourselves. The other piece I'll say is for about the first three years of my meditation practice, I was pretending to meditate. Everybody starts out where you start out. You sit on the cushion. You don't know why you're doing it. It's sort of like, oh, I've seen people that this does stuff for, and I'm going to try it. And But that thing that in me that stuck with it despite pretending, because I had tasted enough of something that it was, I was curious for more. And, uh, and so I think it's really important to be generous with yourself, to be gentle with yourself, to be tender. Um, and to have resolve. Changing tack a fair, fair bit here. There's uh, one other question I was keen to ask you, which is based on um, an article I saw somewhere that you'd written. I think it was called Mind- Mindful Space. And he was talking about how in organizations, we can maybe try and think about carving out a bit of stillness, a pause, some time of reflection before we get on with the the agenda of a of a meeting i'm curious to know a little bit more about that like personally i i love the idea of that i think for um many leaders out there 
um, many individuals out there who happen to be cha- chairing a meeting. That probably just sounds like very scary. What I'd sometimes describe as a as a bit woo woo, maybe just too much of a risk to go into a meeting and say, "Hey guys, let's start the meeting with a, a couple of minutes of, of, of stillness." I'm curious around your your thoughts around that and any suggestions for trying to um, bring that to life. Because as I say, I'm absolutely with you. I just think. So especially now since COVID, people are just clicking off one kind of Zoom or Teams meeting and the next meeting starts exactly the one second after. And I just think that's just not not effective at, uh, at all. But that's the, the world that so many people are operating in. So I think if we can get a moment of, of stillness between meetings, like, like it just seems obvious that that's going to create like far better, better results. So. Yeah, like, can you talk to us about that? Well, I think it's important to know your audience and to know your context. You know, you might be in a really sort of open-minded group of millennials who it's no big deal. They've already done some of that on their own or what. And again, I'm overly generalizing and stereotyping, but um, know your context. If, if you know you're in a bunch of hard-nosed A-type personality sales team meeting and they're all going to just like tear this thing apart because they're going to ridicule it, well, know that context. And that moment of 30 seconds or a minute, don't let it be total silence. Let's just each take a moment um, without talking and let's think about what our sales goals are for the day, the week, the month to come. And just sort of consider it. So again, you speak to the actions that are going to resonate with them. You know, you do that for six months or even six meetings. And then you can inject a little bit more space slowly over time. Oh, let's just try one totally silent. And you guys can think about whatever you want connected to your business. Oh, let's not think about business at all. Let's just think about our children for a minute. You know, you connect to the things that matter to people by speaking their language. And then it's not so weird anymore. Um, it's, uh, it's like, oh, you know, this is what I do on the drive to and from work, but now we're doing it here. So my work actually supports me as a person. Um, I like being here a little bit more than I did 30 seconds ago. And then all of a sudden performance raises and, and things can happen like that. I think, it's, I think it's really important. You connect it to the goals. Or maybe there's a big goal coming up in six weeks. Oh, we're having the big event. Let's all sit for 30 seconds and just think about where planning the event is right now, what challenges there are, and where you want to see it go, and anything that maybe hasn't been mentioned that you're afraid to mention around the event, um, but you think you'd really like to bring in. Let's, Let's just take 30 seconds to do that. You created a safe space where people can sort of bring in a new element of themselves, their greatness, their genius, and you've given them a little bit of rest. Um, rest is good for the company. It's not taking away from company time. I have clients that I say, you know, hey, when you're walking on the beach, do you ever think about work? My best ideas happen when I'm walking on the beach. I'm like, that's why your company should honor the fact that you like to walk on the beach. Now, not always, not 10 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. But enough that you're bringing back those learnings. That's, that's where I think work is going. You know, and those of us that have worked for ourselves and have a little bit more independence in our schedule recognize that it's that spaciousness that allows us to show up fully. Um, When you're at work for eight or 10 hours a day and you don't have any of that space, 
that's where the burnout is coming. You know, again, I like metaphors. If you've ever used a bandsaw uh, to cut a corner in a piece of wood, if you're turning a really tight corner, if you turn the wood too much, it'll snap the blade. So what you have to do is you have to cut in these little relief cuts. So when you're in the corner, little chips come out to make space for the blade. And so the same thing in a work day. We need to take these little spaces so the blade doesn't break. So we stay sharp. Um, I, I just think it's so essential. It's a no-brainer that when you support the team, they will be able to pl- supply whatever services or actions are needed better. Yeah, love it. Um, uh, if we had the camera on, everyone would be able to see me doing that emoji where you slap the palm of your hand on, <laughs> on, your, on your head. I, this, that piece around how you can incorporate some stillness, some quiet, some reflection into, into a meeting without just getting people to sit there in silence, but just take 30 seconds to think about the goals or the agenda or whatever it might be. Oh, I, I absolutely love that. It's one of those that is when you suddenly hear it, you go, oh man, that is so obvious. Why didn't I, didn't I realize that? But <laughs> I think you're, you're spot on. It just makes it real, less scary, less odd. It's about meeting people where they're at, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, People want to be the best, their best selves, and sometimes they know what, how to accomplish that, and sometimes maybe they need a little bit of help. But especially in a system, in a system that is a company, you don't want to jeopardize your job. You don't want to be seen as the person who's rocking too much. And that's where having an independent consultant or team come in, because then they can be the weirdos. They can be the ones to rock the boat. I mean, that's, that's why these professions exist, is the, a neutral third party has less at stake and has perspective um, outside of the system that can be useful. Uh, and I think it's so essential because once those norms are in place, they are hard to sort of like shift um, when you're on the inside. It, it takes sometimes somebody taking a little risk and to do that skillfully. I, I do something I call slicing the risk thinner. Like, oh, would you be willing to do a minute of silence before a meeting? Oh, no way. Would you be willing to do 30 seconds? Oh, no way. Would you be able to talk softly for 30 seconds in a way that I just showed? Oh, okay. So you just keep slicing it thinner until you find the starting point. Maybe somebody says no to that. Would you be able to say, hey, let's reflect for five seconds on what we want to accomplish? Oh, I can do that. Okay. We start there. And then the next meeting, seven seconds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of um, what James. Uh, yeah, James Clear wrote about an atomic atomic habits. When you're trying to change a habit, he just goes about making it so small and granular in the first steps to make to make it an easy easy lift for us. Like I think that one of the examples in his book, you, I'm sure you probably read it. He talks about um, if you want to start work, working out at kind of a lot more. He said your first goal is just go home and put your gym clothes on. Like don't even go out the door once your gym clothes are on. Just get used to putting your gym kit on. He said, second week, you can maybe like just go and visit the gym. They don't even need to do any exercise. Just just go. And to your point, like slicing it thinner, really small ba- baby steps is how we can make change, isn't it? Yeah. When I first started practicing yoga, there were many days I didn't want to do it. And I remember getting up on those days and having the thought, I don't want to practice yoga. And literally getting my yoga clothes on, getting my mat, even while I was walking to the studio, I'm not going to practice today. Even while I was practicing, I'm not doing any yoga today. Even when I was walking home after I'd done yoga, I'm, I'm giving myself a break from yoga today. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, you can have any thoughts you want. 
And if there's deeper resolve, if there's deeper commitment to the mission, and you give yourself space, I didn't resist the thought, I'm not going to do yoga today. I allowed it fully. In fact, I even encouraged it. But that recognition that that didn't have to control me was so liberating. Yeah, thoughts aren't necessarily true or real, right? It's just a thought. Yeah, what's the bumper sticker? Don't believe everything you think. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan, let's uh, change tack almost entirely just for a few minutes to, to wrap up. I've got a couple of very standard uh, quickfire questions that I love to ask every, every guest that com- comes on the show. Um, number one is, what do you think are three really key traits for leaders right now in the current world we find ourselves working and leading in? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I think integrity's got to be there. It's just the, your your word is your bond. That's always true. If if you say one thing and do something else, at a certain point, that's just is so toxic to a culture. Um, so integrity is number one. Uh, I think a connection to meaning and purpose. I I think there's got to be some, and, and and that really is vision. There's there has to be some deeper vision. Uh, we can't just be doing what we see or sort of looking sideways at competitors and trying to get b- the bigger that thing. No, to really be innovative and creative is to have vision. So integrity and vision. Uh, and then the third piece is sort of this deep commitment, uh, this, you know, this unflinching, uh, I'm going to get up and do what I do because I love it, because I'm connected to it. And because it matters to me and, and, and I think it matters to the world. So those, those are sort of my big three. It's, it's, if, if you have those, you're going to do great. You're, the, the world is going to respond to you. It might not respond instantly. Uh, it might not be an immediate return, but, uh, but you'll sleep good at night. Love it. And what would you say is one of the books that's had the, the greatest impact upon you? Or perhaps a book you find yourself frequently recommending to other people to ask the question in a slightly different way. You know, lately I'm a big fan of The Meaning Revolution by Fred Kaufman. Uh, I just, I just, I, I really love his perspective on be a, a missionary, not a mercenary. His uh, sports metaphor, I'm not a soccer fan, but I love the soccer metaphor of, I mean, the, the goal is to win as a company, to achieve the objective, not to just have your department's numbers look good. And the example he uses, you know, if, if you're on the offense of the soccer team and you really just want to score a lot of goals, well, then you're happier with a 13-15 loss than you are a 2-4 win because you because scoring more goals was more important. You didn't care about the win. And, of course, that's ludicrous. And yet, you know, we've created these silos in organizations where departments just want their numbers up because that's how bonuses are delivered. Uh, I, th- I think I think we have to be more holistic and sort of more well-rounded and integrated as companies. Uh, and so Fred just does a great job of that. So, you know, I mean, if we were talking of books outside of leadership, like psychology or philosophy, I also read a lot of classic novel. Um, I, I just want to mention Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's it's one of my favorites. And a slightly left field question. What is the one item? Other than your mobile phone, because lots of people say that, that if it was lost, stolen, broken, you'd immediately find yourself going out to, to, to replace. My answer to this is joy. 
and I think that's why everybody should have some sort of practice because if the and and the joy will get broken, it'll the heart will get broken every day, and it's how we respond to that. It's how we respond to losing our center, to losing our joy, to losing our you know it gets broken by experiences, uh, and yet to not become disenfranchised because of that, but to become resilient. Uh, you know, maybe we've heard the metaphor, the reason the heart breaks is so the light can get in and, uh, and also so it can get out. And when a heart breaks, it, it mends larger. And again, that's, that's not physical, of course. That's metaphorical in our capacity to love and to care. And so, uh, so joy is my answer. If, if we're talking physical objects, my meditation or my teacup. Because uh, those are things that I think help cultivate and remind me to be present. Wow. And I think that is a wonderful, wonderful place to draw our, our conversation to, to a close. As I sit here now, I'm very mindful of, of my own state, actually. I talk to clients all the time about, as, as leaders, it's important to focus and manage our state just because of how contagious state, states are. And you've just got such a grounded uh, state yourself that's really made me feel feel the same, actually, grounded, present, and, and focused. So, thank you very much for uh, like really insightful, fascinating conversation. So, thank you for your time. I guess one thing before we go, actually, where can people connect with you or find out more if they want to, Jonathan? They can always go to the website www.mindfullifemindfulwork.com. We're also all over social media. LinkedIn is sort of our main hub, but you can find us on most of the major platforms. Uh, always interested in an interesting conversation uh, about self-awareness and team performance. Amazing. Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing your, your time, insight and wisdom. It's been, been amazing. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. There you have it, folks. That was episode 91. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening, but more importantly, I hope you took some value from it. And if this episode did tick the boxes for you, then if you've not checked it out already, do go and have a look at episode 82, which featured Scott Shoot, who was the former head of mindfulness at LinkedIn. And then I've just one request for you folks before you go. It would be amazing and I would be incredibly grateful if you could spend just two or three minutes rating and reviewing the show wherever it is that you are listening. And even better than that would be if you could subscribe to the show for me. It really does help us grow the show, which in turn enables us to keep bringing you more and more episodes with better and better guests. That's it for this episode, folks. Take care. See you again soon and lead on.